Hey friends, this is Linda and you're listening to Calling Water, the podcast where we dive into a passage of scripture to think about what it means and take away something it might call us to do. In today's episode, Do Whatever He Tells You, we're looking at the story of Jesus changing water into wine in John chapter 2 and how this seemingly small miracle has big implications for how he loves and pours out his grace into our lives. Let's get started. A wedding is supposed to be an occasion where two people who have decided to marry call their family and friends together for a celebration of their love and lifelong commitment. Now, I say supposed to be because if you've ever planned or even attended a wedding, you know that it's rarely all fun and heartwarming. Weddings come with layers of societal and familial obligations from both the couple and the guests, and it's sometimes a very stressful experience. There are certain expectations at a wedding for how guests should behave, and by the same token, there are things that guests expect at a wedding. And when those expectations aren't met on either side, a lot of people will think back on the experience and not remember that this was a party to celebrate the two people getting married, but rather they'd be miffed at ultimately very minor things that bothered them in the moment. Now, this is why I think many people hire wedding planners and coordinators, because then they're the ones who become responsible for every aspect of the event, and everyone just has to do their assignments. I remember being at a wedding rehearsal once where tensions were running high because everyone just had an opinion about how they thought the ceremony should go. So the bride and groom had to remind people that they had hired a coordinator for this very reason, and all everyone had to do was just do whatever she told them to do. Expectations and tensions surrounding a wedding just seem to come with the territory. In fact, this is the very topic of conversation in today's text, John chapter 2. Jesus is asked to help with something that has gone wrong at this wedding, as things typically do, and even though he's not the coordinator or a part of the wedding party, he's put in a position where people are ready to do what he tells them to do. And what Jesus does is more than just help avert a wedding crisis, but in fact, it's a beautiful example of how Jesus works in our lives today. So let's take a look. Our story today begins with Jesus, his mother, and his disciples having all been invited to a wedding. And we don't know much else about this wedding except that the wine had run out unexpectedly. Now, it could have been that the bride and groom could not afford enough wine for the duration of the celebration, which customarily lasted for days, or maybe they just had more guests than they anticipated. Whatever the case, this was an actual crisis. Remember that wine back in those days was more like a regular beverage than a specialty like it is today? So running out of wine at a reception would have been a major wedding faux pas, and the hosts would have been shamed for their lack of preparation and hospitality. Now, I'm not sure how the news of this predicament reached Jesus's mother's ears. Maybe she was just extra observant. But when she hears that the party had run out of wine, she brings this to her son's attention. 
And when she does, we find that she is met with what seems like a less than enthusiastic response. John chapter 2 verse 4 reads, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus isn't degrading her or dismissing her in this answer. In fact, what he's doing is he's validating her request. He knows she's asking him to do something impossible. And once he performs a supernatural miracle, he will for sure draw attention to himself. And then the countdown to his death on the cross would begin. Now, I'm not sure Mary knew exactly what Jesus would do, but all she knew was that if she took the problem to him, he would know what to do. Now, she was asking him to intervene on something that had little to do with his mission on earth, but she gives him the choice to do so because we find in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And he could have just told them to go away. But Jesus obliges this indirect request. And this is what he does in verses 6 through 8. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. Now Mary told the servants to do whatever Jesus told them to do, and they did so. As peculiar as all of his instructions must have been, but Jesus never did anything just because. In each of his actions, we can find deeper meaning and intentionality for why he did things the way he did. I mean, first of all, Jesus used ceremonial washing jars not jars used for serving beverages typically. And if we want to look at this symbolically, we can say that Jesus took something that was typically used for very ordinary and even mundane purposes and saw their potential for greatness. And secondly, Jesus worked with what he had. In addition to the jars that happened to be there, he asked the servants to simply fill them with water. He didn't ask to collect any special ingredients or make a performance out of the entire thing. He also didn't ask the servants to do anything that would stretch them unreasonably either. Using ordinary people, ordinary things, and through ordinary means, Jesus was setting up something they wouldn't have even dared to expect. And thirdly, the last part of Jesus' instructions was to tell the servants to trust him. No, the text doesn't say he said this explicitly, but when he tells the servants to take some of the water out of the jar and serve it to the master of the banquet, there is a tacit understanding between Jesus and the servants because the servants knew that all they did was fill the things with water. And they knew that Jesus knew that. So to now bring water, and mind you, probably murky, unpurified water, to the chief steward and say, here you go, sir, more wine, they were taking a huge risk. But they listened to Mary's charge to listen to Jesus. And so 
they just did as they were told and maybe even felt a little foolish in the process. But then the puzzling outcome. The master of the banquet takes a sip. A look of surprise comes across his face. He glances at the cup, looks around, and takes another cautious sip. And the servants are probably on the side watching, maybe scared that something's going to go wrong. But then the master of the banquet breaks into a wide grin, rushes over to the groom, and says in an excited voice, reading from verse 10, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus had successfully transformed the water into wine. And not just any wine, but the best wine yet. John's gospel doesn't call this a miracle, but rather calls it a sign and is recorded as the first of the signs Jesus performed as he began his earthly ministry. It's significant that he calls it a sign and not a miracle because signs have directionality. Signs indicate something, point us towards something, or at the very least, inform us of something. So what does this sign of turning water into wine tell us? This miracle is the perfect analogy of what it looks like to receive God's grace through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because when God does something, he does it completely. And we see the same with what God the Son does at a little small town wedding. If we take stock of everything Jesus did at this wedding at Cana in Galilee, we see that Jesus provided an abundant supply of wine. Remember, six jars each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. And you math people can calculate that real quick and figure out that's an insane amount of wine. And not only was it an absurdly high quantity, it was also of extremely high quality. He helped the bride and groom save face and save the party, essentially, with only a few behind-the-scenes people knowing what had really happened just now. And all because someone asked him. When Jesus told his mother that his hour had not yet come, it wasn't because he didn't have the power to do anything to help the situation. It was that once he revealed the power he had, which came from above, it wouldn't be long until he attracted the attention of the people who would put the plan into motion to eventually crucify him. But in being coaxed out of hiding by Mary in this way, served as an announcement of sorts. Just like John the Baptist had been preparing the way for the Messiah, Mary was now clearing the way for the Messiah to do what he came to do. Can you imagine if Jesus had taken it upon himself to manage the crisis directly? Oh, you're out of wine? Let me help. Boom, wine. But Jesus never sought to glorify himself like that. He didn't go around inserting himself into situations and solving all the problems. He mostly waited until he was asked, and when asked, he gave generously and completely. Think about all the ways Jesus subverted expectations through what he did that day. He didn't make a spectacle by announcing this miracle to everyone. He worked quietly in the background with only servants as his witnesses. I mean, chew on that for a little bit. The servants. 
who were not even invited to the wedding. They were there to work. The servants got the VIP backstage passes. Those who turned to Jesus and listened to his, his instructions were privy to what Jesus could do, while those who weren't paying attention were none the wiser that there was even a problem to begin with. Mary invited the servants to experience her son. Without fully knowing what he would do, she knew that whatever he said was the right answer. And in the same way, God the Father invites us all to experience his son. We are called to, as it says in Psalm chapter 34, verses 8 through 9, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. To not just know about him, to not just talk to him when you need something, but to do whatever he tells you. And when we follow Jesus, when we trust in his instructions and await his plans to unfold in our lives, we'll find that we will taste and see that the Lord is good. And what does that taste like? It tastes like the most expensive vintage wine when you're expecting the cheap stuff. It's like when the prodigal son was given the finest robe and ring and a huge celebration instead of what he was expecting, which was to be a servant in his father's house. This is grace. To be given the very best beyond what we could even dream of getting instead of the things we actually deserve. God gives us his grace through signs, wonders, and even ordinary things and wants us to enjoy life with his son, much like the miracle at the wedding was for the enjoyment of all those in attendance. So I challenge you, friends, this week and moving forward, open your eyes and expose your spiritual taste buds to God's grace at work in your life and all around you. And in order to do that, immerse yourself in the word of God. Read the Bible. Go back and listen to past episodes. Sit in the pews on Sundays and hear it being preached from the pulpit. And then do whatever God's word tells you. Now, as you dive into the word, it may compel you to live differently as it should and as it does. It may remind you to let go of past grievances. It may remind you to reach out to someone in need or ditch an unhealthy lifestyle, form a more positive outlook on life, or even admit that maybe you're flailing and you need guidance. Whatever it is that the Spirit encourages you to do, do it. And I guarantee that once you've had a real taste of all that God is giving you, you will inevitably and hungrily ask God for more. Because once we experience Jesus for ourselves, a taste is not enough. We want and need more of his abundant grace in our lives. And when we ask God for it, not only will he give, but he will give us the very best and so much of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this grace you give to us freely and generously. 
Even though we know all about you and have heard of all the amazing things you have done and continue to do, we admit that we've been hesitant to experience you and submit to you fully. But God, we don't want to see you from afar anymore. We want to taste and see for ourselves that you are good, and in you, we lack nothing. We know that you are just waiting to pour out your blessings in our lives to give us the very best and in abundance. And though we may be ordinary and unremarkable jars, may we be ready vessels to receive from you your love and grace and to pour it out unto others so that all who taste of it will likewise know that you are powerful and that you are good. In Jesus' name. Amen.